Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Hello, and welcome to part two of an interview with science fiction writer and UFO investigator Mark O'Connell. If you haven't heard part one of this interview yet, you can check that out in episode 22, the one just before this one. And I strongly encourage you to do so because I think you'll like it. It's a really cool story about how Mark became one of the writers for Star Trek. He's got, uh, there's a few episodes that came straight from his mind, and I just found it incredibly inspiring to hear someone talk about how how that happened. You know, how does something begin in your imagination? And then you get it out on the page, you write it down, you send it in, and it gets to the writers, the main writers, the people who invented the characters, you know, these these characters we care so much about. They read it, and they think, hey, you know what, that's pretty cool. This guy understands our characters, and... This would make for a a very entertaining episode. They take it, they make it into a script, the actors read it and act it out, and next thing you know, millions of people are watching an idea that started in someone's mind, in this case, Mark O'Connell's mind. But, you know, it could be your mind, too. It's anything's possible, and just to hear hear one guy's story about how, how this happened and the work he did to make that happen is just awesome and motivating, and it makes me want to go and write. So I will not delay this any further. You can find the show notes for today's episode, links to things we talked about, as well as uh, the featured song that we wrote just inspired by this episode at othersidepodcast.com slash 23. And please, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, um, leave them right there on that page or email us at show at othersidepodcast.com. So without further ado, here's the second half of the interview with Mark O'Connell. Take it away, Mike. Star Trek's awesome, but it, it exists in the land of fiction. Mm-hmm. And... Um, You've, you've gone on to become a UFO investigator. And that's something, uh, you know, you've taken your interest and brought it up uh, to the next level. And I'd just be interested in how did you get involved with – because you work with MUFON, right? Uh, not, a, not right away. That's not how it started. But that, but that, that, that happened pretty quickly. Um, <clears throat> what happened was this was probably – uh, 2011. So four years ago or so, I was kind of my agent at the time was she was always after me to write write a, a, a big new science. She was like, I know you love science fiction, so write me a big, big science fiction script. So uh, you know, I would always sort of go back to okay, what my file of old ideas. Okay, is there anything in there that I can still work with? Sure. And and a lot of my story ideas always centered around. UFOs, aliens visiting the earth. So I just, I sort of got the bug again in 2011, like, okay, maybe it's time for me to go there and and try to write something really, really good about UFOs. But what can I do that would be really unique at this point? Um, And I was just sort of puttering around online one day and, and um, thought, uh, and I thought, well, maybe I should, I had, I had a good friend who, uh, writes a very successful photography blog. Okay. And at the time he was always bugging me to start writing a blog. And I was always, I always said, why well, there's nothing I'm that interested in that I could sustain writing about for months and months. Right. At a time. It's like having a magazine that you have yeah. to just keep going it's, on. It's hard work. It's really hard work. But then I thought, Oh, well, wait a minute, UFOs. Maybe I should start writing a blog about UFOs because I could see from poking around online that a lot of people were writing blogs about UFOs. So I thought, well, what the hell? Maybe that's what I should do. And not a and lot of, and not a lot of them are very interesting and a lot of them are crazy. <laughs> you know, like the first you read it and you're like, well, when the alien overlord said this to me and you're like, give me a, okay, that you lost me. That, obviously that does come up. That does yeah. come up. All so, you know, so I started putting some thought into it and I thought, okay, there are, there, there are already an awful lot of, UFO commentators out there 
And a lot of them have been doing this a long time and really know their stuff. And a lot of them are rank amateurs like me. Um, But one thing they all seem to have in common is they all take themselves deadly seriously because, because they're terrified that people will, you know, read their stuff, learn of their interest and, and make fun of them for, Oh, you know, how can you believe in that stupid stuff? Right. So, yeah. So there's this tendency uh, among people who write about UFOs um, to just be incredibly, incredibly deadly serious, absolutely humorless, um, and, and even to the degree of downplaying the sensational aspects of the phenomenon, which I thought that's kind of crazy because that's what draws people to the phenomenon, that the spectacular weirdness of it is what is what interests people. So why would you shy away from that? And why would you try to take like all the life out of this really fascinating phenomenon. So that was, that was where my mind was. And I thought I'm, I'm going to start writing you a blog. That's kind of, um, that kind of pokes fun of things. If I see something, something that sure. <laughs> needs to be poked fun of, I'm not going to be serious. I'm not going to take myself seriously. I'll take the phenomenon seriously because if I didn't do that, there'd be no point in writing about it. Right. If I was just writing a blog where I was mocking stuff, I'd lose interest after about a week. So, you know, so the ground rules for me were, I, I believe there is something going on with UFOs. I absolutely do. I think they are real. I think they are a real phenomenon. I don't know what they are or where they come from. Right. But, but I don't think that all these people who see them are hallucinating or are crazy. I think there is something real happening there. So that's the basis of the blog. But I also think that the way people pursue researching that phenomenon is sometimes very, very weird and creepy and funny. And, I, and, and, when, I, and when it is, I'm going to call it out in my blog. So that was sort of where I started from. So I started, again, I'm, I'm poking around online a lot, just right. sort of looking for, looking for inspiration, looking for ways to get started. And I come across the MUFON website. And I had heard of MUFON for years and years because I've been reading UFO books. Of course. I've got the Wisconsin sightings bookmarked. I suppose I should have Minnesota Ah. ones now too. But I bookmark it and I I check it once a week to see like anything up in my neck of the woods. (laughs) Well, they had – I was poking around this website and in a corner of the website was a button that said, become a certified UFO field investigator. And I just thought, holy cow, I, I, I have to do that. That is what I will write about. It's certified like for framing? Like I'm in? Yeah. And I thought this is solid gold. I can do this for a few years, write a script based on my experiences. And in the meantime, because I don't want to have to wait a few years to write about it, I can blog about it as it happens. So Great idea. That's, kind of, that's kind of how the whole thing came about in the summer of 2011. And it just, I just immediately started having a load of fun with it. Um, my, my kids and my wife were a little, uh, my, my oldest son, the first couple of months, my oldest son would just sort of go up to my wife and say, we need to talk about my dad <laughs> it, because he, he was seriously concerned about my sanity. So finally I just told him, you know, I kind of told him what I've just told you. And he was like, okay, I, I get that. I, I can see where this is really fun for you. So I'll stop worrying about you. Okay. Did, did, did the bug, did the bug sk- skip a generation? Yeah, apparently it has. Okay. I'm sad to say. It, it, ha- it happens. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure what I'm going to do about that, but yeah. I think kids always do like whatever the opposite their parents are. And then you find out the grandkids probably are going to be aliens. So then you're, you're right. Cause right back, right. right back to the circle. <laughs> Well, so that's how the whole thing first started. And then, um, so then I started the process of becoming a MUFON field investigator. Well, to do that, you have to pay, I don't know, it's 60 or $70 for their field investigator guidebook. And you have to, you have to read through this guidebook and learn it all and memorize it all. And then when at the end, at the end of that, then you take a test. And if you pass the test, then you become a certified field investigator and they'll start sending you out to investigate cases, which you now know how to do because you've memorized everything in the field book. Right. So, and, and, and I, I deliberately stretched out that whole process because I was having so much fun blogging about the experience of learning all this stuff and working my way up towards the, the exam. I didn't want, I didn't want to rush through it. I wanted to milk it out for as much material as I could. Absolutely. 
So I was probably the slowest, the slowest student they've ever had in MUFON. Um, that that might be saying something, but <laughs> it what, might. What, what anything in anything in the handbook that you were like, what's this? Anything in the handbook that kind of weirded you out or? Well, that? yeah, because again, MUFON. MUFON takes itself very, very seriously. Absolutely. And they're not afraid to go to, there's a whole lot of stuff in the field book that um, was, had to deal with, with what to do when you're investigating a UFO crash site. And this is not tongue in cheek. It is deadly serious. You, All right. So, and, and they have, you know, earlier on, they give you instructions for what you have to put together in your go pack. You need to have this tote bag or backpack you know, sitting next to your front door, ready to grab whenever you go out the door to investigate a UFO sighting. Of course, the UFO, you know, the UFO crash, you need your go pack. I, I've got one myself. Well, there you go. So you're ready. If we have a crash, I'll call you up and we'll go investigate it together. Hell yeah. Um, but, the, but, but they're deadly serious about it because they fully expect that at some point or another, a UFO is going to crash and it might be in your neighborhood and you will be the first person on the scene. And what will you do? How will you... You know, will you tell law enforcement about it or not? Will you have a handy little Geiger counter with you? And if the Geiger counter is going off the scale, what's the safest way to approach the downed UFO if you care to approach it at all? And and the and the the field investigator's guide is filled with stuff like this. It ha- it's got like an alien identification guide. There are five or six pages <clears throat> that are just covered with drawings of different types of alien. So that when you you'll know what so you'll know it when you see one out in the sure, field. Sure, like a um, like when they describe people in the police lineup or something like that. Yeah, like that kind exactly. Of That's exactly what it's like. So uh, that that was that surprised me. That I was unprepared for because um, I I thought it was I thought it was a little absurd. I still haven't had a crashed UFO case. That'd be awesome. But you yeah, I mean it could happen anytime. Um, <laughs> Crash saucers, that's a whole other topic. But that's, for, that's for a whole other conversation probably. Okay. Um, but, yeah, so that was kind of the big surprise there was how, how seriously they took everything. Um, but then I started, uh, I started getting cases, and almost right off the bat uh, in 2000, summer of 2012, had a case uh, in the suburbs of Milwaukee that was really pretty interesting and i can't say i did the best job investigating it it, it i was it was only like my fourth investigation okay so fre- so i was a li- yeah so i was i was a little sloppy i was a little sloppy with the investigation i will admit that due to lack of experience but it was an interesting case and it ended up being chosen by mufon as one of the top 10 ufo sightings of 2012 so awesome. not like not that i can claim any credit for it but i was it was kind of a kick to be put on the list and to be associated with it. But it was a, it was a mother and daughter in uh, heart. It was either Hartford or Heartland. I can never remember the difference between the two. Oh, um, uh, Hart, Hartford. Um, Heartland is more South. Like Heartland's closer to McQuanago and stuff like that. And I think Hartford is not. <laughs> okay. Then it was Hartford. It was, it was the northerly. It was the more northerly Hartford. Okay. Okay. Hartford. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, and it was an interesting case. The daughter, uh, uh, Daughter had been visiting her parents at their house with her four-year-old son. Uh, end of the evening, the daughter and her son were so 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 it's a so it's a mom and dad, their daughter and their grandson. Those okay. are the that's, that's the cast of characters. Um, and so the daughter and the grandson are are out in the driveway in their minivan, getting ready to leave. Um, the mom is standing right outside the driver's door of the minivan, talking with her daughter before the daughter leaves and the daughter looks past her mom over the roof of the mom and dad's garage and says, Holy cow, do you see that thing? And the mom turned around and from her angle, she couldn't see it. And the daughter just said, there's something about your house. So the daughter hops out of the minivan. She and her mom run around to the back of the house, uh, around the garage to the back of the house. And they see this gigantic, uh, brilliantly lit object moving uh, through the sky above and behind their house. And it's moving sort of, it's mostly North to South for maybe 20 seconds. It passes behind some really tall evergreens uh, at their lot line. So 
that's always a big thing when somebody sees a UFO either pass behind something or in front of something. Right. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, that gives you a little spatial reference. So, so they saw this thing pass behind these tall trees and then, boom, it just shot away to the south and just disappeared, you know, in a vanishing point. Um, and they were pretty, they were pretty uh, freaked out about it. So they, they reported this case. Meanwhile, they're sitting there in the backyard sort of gasping for breath, wondering what the heck just happened. And the daughter realizes, oh, my God, my little boy is alone in the minivan. Oh, God. They go running around to the front of the house. The little boy is just is just going berserk. He's bawling his head off because he could tell how scared his mom was when she got out of the minivan. And he thought something really scary and bad was happening. And he's just sitting there alone in the minivan bawling. A detail like that, to me, really adds some credibility to the story. Sure. Because why even include the kid in the story at all? It's an extraneous detail. But the fact that they ran back to the minivan and he was in tears to me was kind of a big, a big deal in that story. So, so I go to investigate. In fact, my wife came with me cause we were coming, we were coming home from a wedding reception that night. Okay. So we, we stop at these folks house and you know, we're kind of dressed up in our wedding reception clothes and they were just nice as can be the mom and the dad and the daughter were there. Um, I guess she must've had a babysitter for her four-year-old son. And they, so this was the big mistake I made in this investigation was I did not separate the mom and the daughter and interview them separately. Oh, sure. Sure. They were both, we, we all just sat down on the rear, on the deck of their house. And before I knew it, we're having this conversation and they're, they're both going over the, the events. And so that was my big, big mistake, um, was that I didn't separate them. Um, and I asked the mom to draw what she saw and she drew this thing that looked, it, it was sort of shaped like a lampshade and it had a row of really bright lights around the lower rim of it. And so she draws this picture and the daughter sort of is looking over her shoulder and the daughter just sort of shakes her head in disgust. She just says, no, that's not what it looked like. <laughs> so the daughter grabs a piece of paper and a pencil and draws the exact same thing. And I'm just looking at these two drawings. I mean, obviously their styles were different, but they drew the same thing. So I was sitting there wondering, why is the daughter saying that the mom's drawing is completely wrong? But here's another detail. So I thought that was an interesting detail. Yeah, no, that's a great. That's a that's a great. She draws the exact same thing, and just to be, you know, uh, mean to her mom or whatever daughters <laughs> are gonna do. She's like, no, let me tell you how it really was. And yeah, it's the same yeah. thing. Okay. And again, I, again, I thought that was kind of a, I thought that was kind of an interesting, authentic moment for the two of them that made me, made me kind of believe what they were telling me. And the third thing was, and they both told me this, they both told me this, um, at different points in the conversation was that, um, after this thing zipped away into the southern sky and they're both standing out in their backyard wondering what the heck just happened and what right. they just saw, they both admitted to each other after a few minutes that the only thing they kept thinking when they were in the backyard watching this thing fly across their backyard, they were the only thing that either one of them was thinking was, oh, my God, they're going to take me away and my family will never know what happened to me. You know, so the, so the mom was thinking, oh, my God, they're going to take me away and my husband will never know what happened to me. And the daughter is thinking they're going to take me away and my four year old son is never going to know what happened to me. They both had that exact same thought. And you, you can tell when someone's being sincere, I, I think. And to, it, to me, they were both being very sincere and authentic. And I, 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 I had no reason to doubt what, what they were telling me. I thought it was, I thought it was a pretty credible story. Still, after four years of doing this, it's, it's probably one of the most credible accounts I've ever come across. And so, like I said, they, they, uh, they turned it into one of the top 10. They want, MUFON wanted to do some more PR stuff with it. Unfortunately, the mom at that point, um, had had, they, they had her mother, um, so a fourth generation now of the family, her mother was having some health difficulty or no, I think had recently died since I had first talked to them. So, so they just, you know, they didn't want any more part of it or they, they you know, did, they did, they didn't want, they didn't want a reporter from the journal Sentinel calling them up and saying, you know, tell us about your story. So, so that was that. Well, and, and so, and that, I think that adds credibility too, though, the fact that they weren't looking for more attention. That exactly. More and attention was offered and they turned it down. 
Yeah. And, and I've come across that a lot, Mike, in a lot of these cases. It's very interesting because when I first came into this, my assumption was that a lot of these people would be attention seekers. And they're really not. It's surprising how few of them are attention seekers. Uh, a lot of these people, they reported what they saw simply because they wanted to find out if anybody else saw the same thing. That's it. And they don't need to go any further with it. Or in some cases, it's as simple as I've been keeping this a secret for 20 years and I just want to tell the story to somebody. I don't care what happens next. I don't care what you do with my story. I, as long as I've had a chance to tell you my story, I'm happy and I'm done. And then, and then I never hear from them again because that's all they needed from the experience. It's right. kind of interesting. No, that, that is interesting that they, they feel like they have something to get off their chest to somebody who will take it seriously, document it, maybe look into it and everything. And, yeah. and right, that would be the first thing I would assume that these people are attention seekers, you know, because it's like the, the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. And, and some of them are attention seekers. Trust me. <laughs> I I've, I've, investigated, I've investigated some really wigged out cases with some really unusual people. But another thing, another thing I hear a lot from people is, when I, when I first make contact with them, uh, either through email or over the phone, yeah. I, I hear this quite a bit. People will say, oh, my God, I, I, when, I, when I reported this on the MUFON website, I never expected anyone would actually get in touch with me. And they're kind of a lot of a lot of these people are really just stunned that somebody is contacting them and wants to know more about what happened to them. That it's not just, right. They're not just sending it out to the big like when you email Google for tech support. <laughs> right excellent excellent example <laughs> right you never expect something back and then that that's probably the same kind of thing and you know we've had a, a big like ufo you know declassified information announcement in this last week mm -hmm. and i think i would be remiss if i didn't ask you about it as far as to maybe explain it a little bit for listeners or anybody who's may have read a couple of things on io9 or a blog or something like that. Um, you know, I, I was just looking to unpack a little bit of what came out this week and why is it a big deal? Okay. I, I'm not going to be able to give you a complete answer. Of course because, not. Because, uh, because there's, I still need to look into it somewhat myself. But the big news was that um, an, an amateur UFO researcher through an incredibly long series of making freedom of information document requests from the U.S. government, um, they got a hold of something like 130,000 pages of documents from the U.S. Air Force's official study of UFOs, which was called Project Blue Book. Now, this also included the Air Force actually had three different studies starting in 1947. The first study was called Project Sign. Project Sign was disbanded and then regrouped as something called Project Grudge. Project Grudge was disbanded, and a short time later, Project Blue Book was formed. And that's the famous one we've all heard of. Right. Project Blue Book is the one that's most well-known. Um, and so, so this researcher, as I said, has, has, made, has scanned 130,000 documents and made them available online for free to anybody who wants to look at them. And it is pretty amazing. The, the, the reason I'm not going to say it's as huge a thing as everybody says it is, is because I have already been using an online archive of the Project Blue Book files for the last three or four years that's been out there for anybody to use it all this time. So I'm not sure why this new person is getting all this credit because I've already had access to the exact same thing. And in fact, I was doing a little looking into it today and I, I just I just checked one document the newly released and the newly released archive, one document from that archive to compare it to a, the identical document from the older archive that I've been looking at for years. And the documents are exactly the same, but ah. in the document from the new archive, the names have been redacted. And in the document from the old archive that I've been using for a long time now, the names are all there. So my initial impression of this new Blue Book archive is that it may not be as good as the one I've already been using. But the question remains, how come nobody knows about this one that's already been out there? Right. I don't quite get it. It's a real mystery to me. I'm, I, I, ha I haven't gotten my head around this yet. Well, it could always be something like if it was released um, right before the Internet, 
You know, I feel like a lot of archives and a lot of um, information, you know, mm-hmm. that in the mid '90s or even in the even in the the late '90s before um, before the inter- the Wayback Machine and before these anything that's kind of released in that era almost gets lost sometimes. Yeah. Well, what I my guess is, and again, I'll need to do more research on this to really know for sure, but my guess is, as far as this newly released archive, my guess is that it's probably a much bigger collection of documents than the archive I've been looking at so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can also tell you, just from the little bit of time today I was poking around on it, it is, it, it is very, very well organized and very easy to search. So, so I'm not, I'm not dissing it at all. I think it's, I think anytime we can get more information out there for public access, it's a great thing. So, uh, you know, hats off to this guy for doing all this work and and just sharing it with everyone. So, I mean, how many freedom, like to get that many documents, I mean, you just, you just said to me 130,000. I believe that's the number. Yeah. I mean, whether it, you know what, whether it's 130,000 or whether it's 50,000, it's still multiples of tens of thousands. <laughs> yeah. So how many freedom of in- information requests I, do you I have to do? I can't even imagine, Mike. I can't. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know what the process is for a FOIA request. I, I don't know. And that just I, seems like a guy's life work, obviously. I mean. It, well, and I, t- I tell you what, I, I have met several individuals in, in the field of UFO research who have that kind of persistence and um, dedication. And it's, an, it's truly an amazing thing. It truly is. I've met a person, one of the, one of the sort of the keepers of the, of the, of the case files of, of J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies. Okay. Really, really fascinating woman, and she has sort of given over half of her basement for the storage of these precious files. She has spent years writing a writing a paper about one particular UFO sighting that took place forty or fifty years ago. She has basically dedicated the last I don't know how many years of her life to just researching and writing about this one case. Every time she talks to me about this article, I'm just in awe. I just, I, I could never do it. I, I can't believe that somebody has that dedication. But there are a lot of people out there doing UFO work who have that kind of dedication and loyalty. And it's, it's an amazing thing. It's really impressive. Yeah, that has to be. Well, I think about, uh, <clears throat> uh, I'm sure you've met Don Schmidt. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, I interviewed him back for the Badger Herald in college, you know, in 1997 oh, wow. or whatever, <laughs> when he was coming to do a, uh, when he was coming to do a thing at the UW, I was like, oh man, we got to put this in the paper or find a way. And I remember everybody's making fun of me. Like you talked to the alien guy last night and I'm like, it's the college newspaper, man. Like this is the place where alien stories belong. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm like, what are you making fun of me for? What are you... Um, Woodward and Bernstein over here. I mean, you're talking about keg parties, but uh, so but I, I think about but I think about him and Roswell, and how much of his life has been devoted to this mm. one incident mm-hmm. um, that took place in 1947. You know, and uh, that that blows my mind sometimes because it's it it's almost like somebody with you know, PTSD or something, you know, that re- that <laughs> relives the incident over and over again. Like there's something to prove there. There's something to get at. And, um, they'll, I mean, they'll take, they'll do it till they're dead. And so no I, I always thought Don was interesting in particular because of just his, uh, you know, his tenacity for, for that one particular case. Um, all right. A couple more things. And I know we've been talking forever and I got to let you go. And, Number one, I want to mention, we were talking, you mentioned J. Allen Hynek, and we talked about Project Blue Book. So we should tell people a little bit about the book you're working on. And, and when, when, you, when you get a release date and stuff, obviously, we'll talk about it more. But um, who is J. Allen Hynek, and why are you spending years of your life dedicated to him? Well, thank you for asking. Dr. J. Allen Hynek was a, an astronomer um, who taught for, well, a First half of his career, he taught astronomy at the Ohio State University. Second half of his career, he taught astronomy at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Mm -hmm. 
while he was working in Ohio in the late 1940s, flying saucers became a thing. The first modern flying saucer sighting took place in the summer of 1947. Um, a private pilot in Washington, flying through the Cascade Mountains in Washington State saw a string of silvery disks flying through the air, dodging in and out of the mountain peaks at, at, at what he estimated at, at about 1,200 miles an hour. It became a huge sensation. All of a sudden, people started sighting flying saucers everywhere around the U.S. That right. whole summer, summer of 1947, it just the UFOs just it people just had UFOs on the brain. The Air Force was caught short. Um, the Air Force's mission is to keep the skies over the United States safe, and all of a sudden, not long after the end of World War II, suddenly the skies above the United States are filled with. All sorts of things that the Air Force can't identify, can't keep up with, can't shoot down, can't explain. It was really a major, major headache and embarrassment for the U.S. Air Force. Absolutely. Um, but a, a visionary general, General Nathan Twining, um, decided that something needed to be done about it. And Twi I, I found out a couple of years ago, uh, Mike, you'll appreciate this. We talked about Monroe earlier. There's yeah. a city park in Monroe called Twining Park. Turns out it's named after Nathan Twining because he grew up there. Oh, really? That's that's super interesting. That's yeah. funny. From Monroe, so, another UFO lover from, from Wisconsin. <laughs> right. So Nathan Twining um, says, we, we need to study this. We need to find out what's going on. And people listened to him. He, was, he had a high enough rank that people listened to him. And Project Sign was formed. Well, Right off the bat, Project Sign was just overwhelmed with reports, and the reports just got weirder and weirder, and they couldn't explain them, They, but they realized that they had to explain them, and and at all costs, they had to explain the UFO sightings as natural phenomenon or right. man-made phenomenon just to ease the minds of the American public. So they decided they needed to draft an, a professional astronomer to go through all these reports they were getting and identify as many of them as possible as simple astronomical uh, occurrences that were being misidentified as as UFOs, right. as flying saucers. So the closest guy at hand was J. Allen Hynek because the Project Sign was housed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Hynek okay. was teaching at OSU in Columbus. Hynek already had had lots of high security clearings. He had clearances. He had been doing a lot of classified government contracting work for really since the outset of World War II. So he was kind of a natural. He, he, he could be trusted. Um, he knew how the government operated. Uh, he wouldn't question his bosses. Right. He would, he would do what was asked of him, and, you know, and he would be dependable. So the Air Force came to him at Ohio State and said, could you please, you know, can we hire you for Project Sign? Well, one thing led to another. Hynek took the job. He, he took great pleasure in the first few years, he took great, great pleasure in knocking down all these UFO sightings and saying, oh, no, no, that was Venus. Oh, no, no, that was a comet. Oh, no, that was a bolide. That was right. a fireball. That was a cloud of gas. Cut yeah. me out of here. He was, he was very good at it. He was very successful at it, and he enjoyed the hell out of it. But what happened then, after a couple of years, his contract was up. He went back to teaching. Two or three years later, UFOs appear again. The Air Force comes back to Heineck at Ohio State and says, hey, we need you to look at these new cases again. And Heineck, Heineck's reaction was, what? UFOs are back? <laughs> he, he, he honestly thought that it was a post-war paranoia thing that had to do with Pearl Harbor. He, right. you know, he, and he thought that, you know, give it time, it'll go away. So he's so shocked to find out that it hasn't gone away by 1952 that he starts to get curious about it as a scientist and think, huh, maybe there's something interesting going on here. So as time goes on, so he ended up, so, so as I said, Project Sign begat Project Grudge, which begat Project Blue Book. Hynek was, during this whole time, from 1947 to about 1969, Hynek was the only astronomical scientific advisor working on these projects. And so he had, so he saw every, every UFO case that was reported to the Air Force that went through Project, Project Blue Book. Heineck had his hands on. So he knew everything. He knew every UFO case. He knew every, every kind of thing that was being seen in the sky. He knew it all inside and out. And what he kept coming back to was that 
no matter how hard he and the Air Force tried to explain all of them away, there was always this residue of 20% of sightings that could not be explained. And for the first couple of years, Hynek thought, hey, my batting average is 80%. I'm doing great. Right. Well, by the time the Air Force comes back to him, he's starting to think, hey, my batting, my, my average is only 80%. What's wrong? Why, why can't I explain these other 20? Something weird's going on here. So over time, he kind of converted and he, and he said, you know what? There is something unusual and real apparently going on here. And the Air Force really should spend some time studying this instead of just trying to dismiss it all. Absolutely. And so he became a he became a huge thorn in the side of the Air Force, although they kept him under their employ until 1969. Well, the devil, um, you know. Exactly, exactly. And for that very same reason, um, this whole this whole uh, culture of UFO uh, enthusiasts that that developed during the 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 40s and 50s and 60s came to see Heineck as kind of a traitor. Um, you know, you have access to all this information. You have the ear of the government. Why aren't you forcing them to admit that UFOs are real, that they're coming from other planets and that there are aliens in in them? And so, so he was hated on both sides, which made him a really interesting figure because he kind of had sympathies both ways. And because he was a scientist, he would only commit to a theory that could be proven. And there was nothing that could ever be proven with UFOs. So he never felt he could truly commit to, yes, I believe they're extraterrestrial. Yes, I believe they're, you know, they're experimental Soviet aircraft, whatever. He, he just refused to commit, which infuriated everybody on both sides. Right. They need so, some kind of closure. And, and the guy in charge this was a man of science and he wouldn't give it to him. Yeah, exactly. And it really wrinkled a lot of people and it still wrinkles a lot of people. It still does. Any new UFO book that's been published over the last 10 years, look, just look to, the, look to the index in the back of the references and, and look at how many times Heineck is, is, is referenced in that book. In some books, he is referenced like 50, 100, more than 100 times. Sure. And he's usually, and, and when he is mentioned, it's usually very dismissively. Well, I, through the course of my UFO blog, I came into contact with folks in Chicago who still operate. Now, Heineck died in 1986. He's been gone almost 30 years. His UFO Research Foundation still exists in Chicago. It's still being run by some of his some of his associates, and I, I met up with them in the course of writing my blog. They were they were they've always hoped that they could find a writer who would write the definitive account of Dr. Heineck's career, not just as a UFO hunter but as an astronomer. Um, I put my hand up and said I would love to do that project, and one thing led to another, and boom, I was I had access to all of uh, the foundation's files, and um, they're all right in Chicago, so they're really easy to get to. Uh, he he taught at Northwestern, so he has a, a huge archival collection at Northwestern. So I so I'm writing a book about his career, and I have all this career material of his, you know, r- basically right in my lap. Um, so it's it's been a, it's been a very fun and interesting project. And, well, that, that's fascinating. I mean, so you're writing the official biography of Jalen Hynek. Well, I don't. I don't like to call it a biography because it doesn't go in a whole lot into his, you know, his growing up and his family life. Sure, like if he was beaten as a kid or something like that. You probably don't yeah, talk about exactly. that. Exactly. So it's not that kind of story. It really does focus on his career. Um, I mean, obviously, the, his family is part of the story. I just I was fortunate enough to interview one of his sons uh, in September. That was a huge deal because uh, the the scientific director of Heineck's scientific foundation kept telling me. You know, Heineck's kids do not like to talk about their dad's work. They, they will never want to talk to you. And I ended up interviewing one of his sons. And man, was he glad to talk about his dad's work. So it turned out that was a wrong assumption. So um, and hopefully over time I will be able to interview at least one or two more of his kids. So, well, uh, But yeah, so the book is not a true biography. It's an account of his career. Okay, well, that, that's going to be really exciting. And I'm excited to read it and hear about it, especially because J. Allen Heineck's always been a figure that I've admired. Um, you know, for a while, you know, you read about him, you're like, I think this guy's just a, you know, he's, he's just a talking head for the Air Force. Yeah. But when you do get into him, you realize that, you know, he was someone who was trying to balance between, you know, the ufologists and their, and their theories, 
mm-hmm. and the Air Force and their dismiss, you know, being dismissive and 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 their rejection. And then you got to find a way in the middle, the the scientist way, which would be to look. I can't prove anything, but something's yeah. going. If we can't, you know, twenty percent of a thousand sightings is still two hundred unexplained things in the sky. And I don't know what's scarier, the fact that the government might not be hiding it, you know, the fact that they don't even know what's going on. Um, or, but so I'm, I'm really excited for that book. Well, thanks. So the book is, the book is titled 20% in honor of, in honor of those unsolvable cases that really always rankled Dr. Hynek and sort of served as the spur for his career in a lot of ways. Um, so I'm, what I'm hoping for is, Mike, I've been working on it for a long time. I'm, I'm, I'm currently, um, trying to uh, secure representation from a literary agent. That's been a very time-consuming process, but sure. um, but we've we've had some positive developments over the last month, so that's great. What I'm ideally hoping for is that this book would be published in March 2016, because that will be the anniversary of the infamous Michigan swamp gas case, which was which actually put Heineck on the map as a UFO god. But it was also, in his words, the worst experience of his career. So, well, it, you'll have to real quick sum up the Michigan swamp gas case. One last <laughs> thing for our listeners: just be, All right. if you're going to tease us like that, you got to give us a little detail. <laughs> All right, I'll I'll just give you the the the, the quick the quick five cent version. Um, March 1966, southeastern Michigan, in and around Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, there, for, for a period of about two weeks, there were multiple UFO sightings. It started out with, uh, police, police officers out on patrol at night, seeing strange lights in the sky and giving chase to them and, and getting all excited and, and, you know, seeing different shapes and sizes of these lights and ne- never being able to keep up with them. And this is, a, you know, a, a, and they were policemen, so they had to report this in their logbooks. So there's, so there's this, you know, there's documentation of these sightings. Well, after a couple of weeks of this, uh, a farmer and his family that lived out outside of Ann Arbor, out in, out in the boonies, um, saw something, saw some strange lights settled into some swampland behind their farm. And the dad and his son stalked this thing. Sheriff's deputies were called in. Um, there was, a, there was a, long, a long period that night where people were stalking these lights through the swamp, but, but never caught up with them, and then they disappeared. Okay. The very, very next night in Hillsdale, Michigan, about 90 miles away, at a small community college, 87, 87 women living in the women's dormitory at this college saw strange lights apparently come down from the sky and land in the University Arboretum, which was just outside. It was about 1,500 feet from their dormitory. So over the course of like four hours, 87 young women are watching this thing, whatever it is, in the College Arboretum. And the, the accounts of that are, they're just priceless. The way that, the way that these kids um, observed and processed and recorded what they were experiencing, is that's been one of the funnest parts of this book to write. It's, it's total entertainment, but they brought in their, their dorm house mother and the local, uh, the local civil defense agent. Um, and so this, the combined run of these sightings over the period of about two weeks made huge national headlines. Sure. Project, Project Blue Book did not want to touch it at first, but bowing to public pressure, they finally sent Heineck over from Evanston. They sent him over to Ann Arbor. Heineck spent three days in the vicinity, um, the whole thing had become such a huge circus. Uh, it had become a media circus. It had become a political circus. And Heineck gets on the scene and, and finds himself just in an impossible situation. There are so many witnesses and there are so few a- accounts that actually jibe that he has to make some executive decisions about which cases he's going to look at and which testimony he's going to look sure, at. Sure. And he decides to he decides to ignore some of the sightings and ignore some of the witnesses. And what he ends up so so and you can understand why he did that. He had to contain what he was investigating, otherwise he never could have investigated any of it at all. Right. There's so, dozens of witnesses. Yeah, so he had good reason to do this. Meanwhile, the Air Force is putting intense pressure on him to hold a press conference immediately and defuse this situation and explain these things away as a natural phenomenon once and for all. 
So one thing leads to another. The Air Force forces Hynek to hold a press conference after three days. Hynek still does not have an explanation for what's been going on, but he has to get in front of what was what was de- described as the biggest press conference ever held at the Detroit Press Club in March of 1996. And Hynek says, I could not make a case for this in a court of law, but it's possible that what these people saw was swamp gas. And he goes on to say, he goes on to add all sorts of qualifiers and explanations as to how he came to this conclusion. But at that point, nobody was even listening to him. All people heard was swamp gas. Right. And the and he said immediately the reporters were running to the phones to call in their stories. And the next day, the newspapers were just full of, oh, the nation's number, the Air Force's number one UFO expert says that the people of Michigan are idiots. <laughs> that was basically, that was the storyline that took hold. And the entire population of Michigan was furious of course. As I said, Hynek, de- Hynek described it as the low point of his career because it was not at all, it wasn't at all how he would have liked to have conducted an investigation in the first place, but it definitely was nothing at all like how he would have wanted to handle um, the, the, um, uh, the information, how the information was presented and dispensed to the public. Everything was done wrong. Everything was done as wrong as it possibly could have been done. And Hynek looked like a fool and people hated him and people still hate him for, for the swamp gas incident. Right. It's oh. like, it's like, it's like he, it's like the biggest sin ever committed in, in UFO research was the swamp gas hypothesis. And the biggest humiliation for project blue book. Right. And, but the kicker is Hynek was almost certainly right. That's the kicker. And that's been one of the big surprises of working on this book is that I went into it knowing only the conventional wisdom, which was that Hynek was lying. He was covering up for the Air Force. He knew that these were real spaceships, but he wasn't going to admit it. So he called him swamp gas. That's all I knew. Well, I started doing research in the Kufos files and at the Northwestern at the Northwestern um, uh, archives because he was teaching at Northwestern at the time. And I uncovered a completely different story, a completely different story than what I had always assumed to be the true story. So it, that's been the real rewarding part of working on this book is, is going into these situations, these UFO cases that I've heard so much about, I've read so much about, and I have made certain assumptions about what really happened. To go back through historical documents and look at what really happened and how things were really investigated and how things were really, you know, publicized in the press, very often I come away with a completely different picture of the UFO sighting than, than what I thought was true. And that's just been incredibly fun and exciting. And it's really made the story of Hynek that much more interesting because there's a lot more nuance and subtlety to these things than you ever would expect. And Hynek is a very, very interesting guy. He was not, he was not, he was not a sap. He was not a, a stoolie for the airport air force. He was a, he was a very complicated guy and not, and I just want to throw this out there too, as another tease. It's not just that he was fighting for scientific accuracy. He was, but there was also a part of Hynek that was very enamored with mysticism. And that is a big part of the story as well. And we'll talk about that next time. That sounds great. And, and, and so when people can, where can people follow you as you're writing the book, as you're doing your UFO investigations and the things that you're talking about? I mean, I'm looking over our list of things to talk about and, and some of the questions I've taken from the, the posts um, I've you know, read on your blog. And so uh, there's, there's a ton of interesting stuff. If you're into UFOs and especially a blog with a personality, where can people find you, Mark? HighStrangenessUFO.com. And we're going to put a link to that in the show notes. So, oh, great. Great. Thanks very much for hanging out with us today, Mark. We really appreciate it. It's been fun. Thanks for the time. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. The song this week is a love song, and that's not something we do too much of, but when we can bring aliens into it, well, we'll love just about anything. This song is called Reverse Engineering. For every little sorrow... And every little sigh For every time I scream Every time you cry For all the moments wasted On some tiny crime Will never be new again 
will never be new again. I was wasted and afraid. Everything you did was my favorite. Every moment a holiday. My jokes are still hilarious. Your mood is still gregarious. We'll never be new again. We'll never be new again. It's not rocket science, reverse engineering love. It's not rocket science, reverse engineering love. Take the moments you remember and the places that you treasure, and cross the rivers under all the bridges that we burned. There's no drug to recreate things past their expiration date, and I hope there's more to life than just. Waiting for our turn. It's not rocket science, reverse engineering love. It's not rocket science, reverse engineering love. Just like the German scientists after the war. Build all the spaceships that came crashing through our door. All these chemical machines and their adolescent dreams are much more than slaves to our biologic needs. It's not rocket science, reverse engineering love. It's not rocket science, reverse engineering love. All the singers that will say. Their love just fades away. They don't have to live inside our lives every day. No, we'll never be new again. No, we'll never be new again. But that don't mean we quit. That's no reason it should end. No, we'll never be new again. No, we'll never be new again. But that don't mean we quit. That's no reason it should end. It's not rocket science, reverse engineering love. It's not rocket science, reverse engineering love. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side.